So we're looking at Psalms 74 and 79 tonight, and we can start by reading them. So Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you cast us off? No, oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. Now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. And they have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. O oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea, serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the floods. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached the Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. And do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant. The dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. And do not let the oppressed return to shame. Let the need, poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your, your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. And do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Now let's read Psalm 79. You'll see that it's very similar. Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth, their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. They have become a reproach to our neighbors. A scorn. We have become a reproach to our neighbors a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. They have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. And do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? 
that there be no one among the nations in our sight, the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come forth before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, the reproach with which they have reproached you, Lord. So we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, we give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Back to Psalm 74. And just some... Uh, some words of, of introduction, and that is that this, these two Psalms, 74 and 79, they describe the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's about the only event that really fits the description that is given. And this corresponds then to the Babylonian invasion in 587. So this is more than just the destruction of a building. It's the destruction of their center of worship. The temple in Jerusalem was central to Israel's worship. And if you take your Bibles and you look, you look at the book of Exodus, the latter half of Exodus was all about the institution of the tabernacle and the, and the, and the sacrifices. And then you get Leviticus, it's all about the, the sacrifices, the bird offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering establishment of the Levites, and so on. And we see that, and then right down through, all through the Old Testament, the temple is the centerpiece of the nation. They, weren't, they were not a democracy, they were a theocracy. So God was in charge. So when they're losing their temple that we see in this passage, uh, it couldn't be more important. Uh, they were losing the center, the heart of their nation. Mind you, they weren't all following the Lord as they ought to have been. And uh, just going to put up a little timeline. Maybe some of you are aware, some of you are not. I kind of like this just general big timeline. What are we talking about here? I like to think Abraham roughly 2,000 years ago, Moses roughly 1,500 years ago, David 1,000. That's a, pretty much a hard stop. Everybody's agreed he was king around the year 1000. And then the kingdom split in 922, and the fall of Samaria in 722. And then we have the fall of Jerusalem in 586. These are big ticket items, big dates. And the, the prophets, the minor prophets, they all hang on these dates. And so this, uh, these two psalms recount the fall of Jerusalem. So we're in 586. We're a long time past David here. We might ask ourselves, well, what are the lessons in it for us today? We, uh, most of us live in relative comfort. We don't live in a war zone. Uh, we, haven't, we don't live in a war zone. There are people who do, of course. We've had a pretty, pretty comfortable life. And we, have our, we have our sufferings. And, but, and to a lesser degree, sometimes we find ourselves asking why and how long. And this is the refrain that comes from quite a bit here and in other psalms. I'm just going to point out by way of introduction as well. This is a, a community lament. It's, it's a recognizable form in the psalms. There's about almost 40 lament psalms, psalms of lament. And they take, they, they take a pattern. 
They call out to God, often their personal laments of David. He says, God, I'm talking to you. <laughs> and, and then he defines the problem. I have a problem. And here they define the problem. Their, their city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And then there's a petition. And they say, God, can you not, how long, can you not intervene and look after these people? You know, get rid of the enemy. And then there's a vow. I've combined four and five here, the statement of confidence of God and a vow to trust in him. And we see this a lot in David's life. David comes to God often and he says, God, <laughs> these people over here, they want to kill me. Can you do something about it? Man, I'm going to trust in you and I'm trusting in you, but do something really quickly. And this is, this is a community lament. Azaf and company, they're, they're speaking on behalf of the whole community. And there's a lesson for us here. And that is that God wants us to come to him when we're not happy about something. He's totally fine with us coming to him. And we have that example of how to pray from David and even here, this community lament, where we'll see that um, they come to God, and God's fine with it. But they come, it's like in Philippians 4, 6, make your requests made known unto God with thanksgiving. Don't just come complaining. They come and say, we trust in you. So that's a good pattern for us. And then here's a question that comes up. Asaph, we see, it says it's a contemplation of Asaph. Well, how can Asaph be the author? He was a contemporary of David, right? So... And yet it's hard to get it around it in, the, in these psalms because it's clearly the destruction of the temple. And it's clearly the only time this really happened like this was in the time of in 586. So there's a couple of solutions that I've read. And one is, is that the name Azaph applies to his guild or his heritage, not just to the person of Azaph. In other words, it would be like the name of a choir, the name of a, of a group of singers. And in fact, we see the sons of Asaph mentioned in the book of Ezra. So clearly the tribe continued. And then there's another view, which is interesting as well. And that is that it was in fact Asaph, who was appointed by David, who wrote this song. And it's a prophecy of what was going to happen. And that has some, some interest to it as well, because if you think of it, it's not going to be the last time the temple gets destroyed. The temple is going to get destroyed again. The time of Antiochus and the fifth Epiphanies, and uh, in time of Jesus, right after Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and get, it's going to get destroyed again during the tribulation. So, to think of it as a prophecy is interesting as well. And we won't spend too much time on this, but if you have the time, there's a lot of shared vocabulary between these two psalms. But let's look at Psalm 74 then, and we'll look at it. In more detail. So we read, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Um, they're appealing to, to Elohim, the great God, mentioned four times here. And he said, they say, look, we're your sheep. We're not your enemies. You've purchased us. You've redeemed us. Verse 4, they talk about the enemies. Your enemies are in the midst of your meeting place. 
And so they're, they're, they're saying, God, we are your people. How can this be happening to us? And they're, they're arguing their, their ownership of their belonging to God. And so these places have been destroyed in verse 8. And he says, we don't see our signs. And if you think about it, if you want to know the history, after the destruction of the temple, the holy ark was gone, right? The Shekinah glory left. No more ark of the covenant. We don't know where the ark is. Nobody knows where the ark is, really. There's been a lot of theories, but it's at this time where the ark of the covenant leaves. And so they pray, God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? And so they're in distress. And then they go on in verses from verses 13 onwards. You divided the sea by your strength and so on. Talks about creation. And they remind themselves of God's power in creation. And reminds themselves as well how they were delivered by God uh, in, in Egypt, right? You divided the sea by your strength. So they, they think back to God's power, and they think back to how God is almighty. And then if we look at the verses 32, they call them, Rise, O God, plead your cause. Remember how foolish man reproaches you daily. And don't forget the voice of your enemies, and so on. So they're crying out to God. Now, it's interesting when we think of this, because who are these people? When was this written? Because they should have known why they were, why uh, this, the city and the temple was being destroyed. This, this is something that the prophets have been talking about for a long time. And you're essentially saying, if you don't get with the picture, this is going to happen, and it happens. It's essentially a parallel story to what happens in the book of Lamentations, the end of Jeremiah, the end of Second Kings. And Jeremiah had been predicting this. Right? All the prophets said, look, if you don't uh, turn from your idols, if you don't correct yourself, God is going to judge. That was the message for several hundred years. So it surprises me a little bit that they could be saying they will, I guess it's like when we send out an announcement, not everybody gets the memo, right? I mean, maybe they, maybe these people had forgotten. They obviously weren't, hadn't been taken into the exile. So maybe they were left there. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah was no longer there. He was in Egypt, so... But they still asked why and how long was it going to be? But in this particular instance, there was a reason. And most everybody knew the reason. And we'll see that when we turn to Psalm 79, because in Psalm 79, there's actually a little bit of repentance going on. So again, they describe the destruction of the temple. And uh, it's very, very gory and very gruesome, actually. And then uh, in verse 5, how long will you, be will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? So, again, uh, they know that God is a jealous God. And they know that they're supposed to be following him, but they weren't. And in verse 8, we read, Oh, do not remember our former iniquities against us. Let your... So here, here they're, they're ready to acknowledge, we didn't read that in 74, they acknowledge their sins. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. Help, help us, O God of our salvation, verse 9, and so on. They're praying for deliverance, and there's, a, there's an admission of sin. 
And then we we move on and they give the argument in verse 10, why should the nation say, where's your God? And so on. And uh, they, they ask God to uh, punish, to avenge the, the, the blood that was shed and to judge the people. So that's essentially what we read in these Psalms. And uh, it's interesting for us, we can ask ourselves, what, what, what would be an application for us today when we read about the destruction of the temple? And uh, as I was thinking about this, there's an interesting little thing to think about. Well, here's what I was mentioning. The temple is destroyed now. It gets... Uh, it gets uh, dishonored again in Daniel with Antiochus of Epiphanes comes and, and remember sacrifices the sow on the on the altar, but there's no longer uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And then we know that in the time of, of Jesus, before Jesus' day, there was Herod's temple got rebuilt, and the disciples said, "Well, you know, what's going to happen with the temple?" And he tells them it's going to get torn down. And so in AD 70, that's what happens. And then we have it destroyed again and rebuilt and destroyed during the tribulation. But the Jerusalem was the city of God. And we'll look at that when we look at Psalm 84, Psalm 48. There's a sense that this is where God was. It was localized. But when we think about it, though, for us as Christians, Jesus transformed the idea of the divine presence on earth through the incarnation of Christ. In Christ, God literally comes to dwell on earth with humanity. And in John chapter 2, Jesus likens himself to the temple. He says his body is going to get destroyed. He predicts his death and his resurrection, and then they'll get raised up again which will create a new covenant with God and make the services of the Jerusalem temple obsolete. And Jesus goes even further in his conversation with the Samaritan woman and in, in John 4 says, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mount nor in Jerusalem. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the need for a sacrifice is removed in Christ and the need for a place of intermediary representation is also removed by his association with humanity and his intercession on our behalf. So we know we, we will we will never be in a position like they were, having the temple destroyed, because Christ already uh, died and rose again from the dead. So uh, I have to say that what and I'll try to convey to you some of the thoughts the Lord was blessing me with. And it, it, it bottoms down to me, for me, to the centrality of the Lord's Supper for us. Think about it. In the Old Testament, if we, if we want to look to the, often we look to the Old Testament to give us guidance on worship, give us guidance on how to do things. And there are many instances in the New Testament, the New Testament's very succinct, Right. New Testament says abstain from sexual immorality. The Old Testament illustrates this in the life of Joseph. He fled from Potiphar's wife and also the life of Samson. He didn't. 
The New Testament reports the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament recounts his sufferings in Psalm 22, 69, Isaiah 53. The New Testament says, Take all, take all your cares to the Lord with thanksgiving. I alluded to that. The Old Testament has over 40 laments on it. So in, in a way, the Old Testament fills in a lot of gaps for us. And when, when we look at the Old Testament and we see the centrality of the, of the animal sacrifices, the Old Testament, it's all about the temple in the tabernacle. And the people of God approach God through these animal sacrifices. And that was their worship. That was the center of their their uh, life. So what do we have? Well, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. I just read that. But we have the privilege of coming together to worship God and remembering him through the breaking of the bread and the Lord's Supper, right? And, and it's interesting because sometimes I think the, the centrality of that in God's big picture, we miss that a little bit. I miss it. I mean, I miss understanding it. Because if we look at the Old Testament and the centrality of the sacrificial system, it's on every page. It's everywhere. Christ replaced that. So when we come together for the Lord's Supper, we're not um, re-sacrificing Christ, as some think we are, <laughs> but we're remembering him. And I suggest to you that it's a very important thing for our worship. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's, uh, it's very central to the whole Bible, and it's central to us. And so when Paul uh, speaks in 1 Corinthians and he starts telling me about church truth, when he gets a lot of the problems solved, where does he start? In, in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about our communion and the blood and the, the bread and the, and the wine and the communion with the Father. And then, then where he goes, he goes to chapter 11, it's about the Lord's Supper, amongst other things. But a big portion of it, half of it, is about the Lord's Supper. He deals with that first. He doesn't get to the gifts about teaching and prophesying and pastoring and all that stuff until chapter 12 and chapter 14. So clearly, when we look in the New Testament and the practices that we have, the Lord's Supper was a very central, uh, was central to their worship. And, and it should be, and it is, by God's grace, central to our worship. Because this is the only way we can approach God, right? And we remember that through Christ. We remember his death and his resurrection. And it just, uh, when I was thinking about this, these psalms, it led me to think on the importance of uh, remembering the Lord and his sacrifice for us because it takes up most of the Old Testament. <laughs> and when they lost it, they lost everything. Well, they didn't lose God, but they lost God. Whereas we won't lose it because we'll always have the Lord. We'll always be able to remember him wherever we are as part of God's church. So, um, you follow me? <laughs> Not so much? A little bit? Yeah. It's just, it just reminded me, meditating on these songs, the importance of the Lord's name. We won't lose it like they did. Now, if we don't respect the Lord's suffering, and we don't, we don't tend to it, or we don't come to it, or we, we don't do it as we ought, well, then, yeah, we will lose it. 
you know, we'll be losing it. But I'm, I'm glad that in our assembly that we don't just tack it on at the end of the month, one Sunday a month at the end of the service or something like that. And that it's central to our worship because I think as we look at the revelation of God, his sacrifice is central to our worship. So there you go. New scattered thoughts from 74 and 79. We don't look at them that often, but it was a major, it's interesting that we're reading about them in the Psalms, not just in Lamentations and at the end of the book of Jeremiah, the end of the book of Second Kings, but in their Psalter, they, it was a place for remembering the destruction of the temple and how they reached out to God. Well, God would eventually answer them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's some varied conclusions and applications for us. We are encouraged to, as, as communities in Christ to take our concerns to God. Laments are okay. Uh, as we come to God respectfully and thankfully, we can appeal to God's power and his acts. We appeal to his character. And if there's a need to confess and recognize our sin, then so be it. We turn the situation over to God. And I think it's also a reminder. It was a reminder to me that the Lord's Supper is central to worship, not something peripheral. It's always been the centerpiece of God's message to man and our response to it. But bless the God, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your holy and precious word. We're thankful that you can read it and meditate on it. And we ask you to apply it to our hearts and our minds. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.